history this week, September 30th, 1765. I'm Sally Helm. The first meeting isn't official. It's ad hoc, like so much else that's happening at this time in the American colonies. But it's a very important milestone. In New York City, delegates from four colonies— Massachusetts, Rhode Island, New York, and South Carolina sit down together to discuss an issue of mutual interest, something that unites them against a common enemy. In the coming weeks, more delegates will join, from nine colonies in all. They call their meeting a Congress, the Stamp Act Congress. The Stamp Act is the thing they're here to discuss. It's a tax on paper legal documents, newspapers, even playing cards. It was handed down by the British Parliament, and the colonists hate it. This Congress is going to be one expression of their outrage, but a very sober, slightly boring one. You know, they walk inside a building, pass some big fancy columns, sit down in a room, have a long debate about the difference between external and internal taxation, and at the end, issue a fancy declaration drawn up by fountain pen. But outside the Congress, out in the streets, the outrage is more palpable. The colonists have been rioting. It all kicked off about a month earlier, in late August. There was a man in Boston who was supposed to implement the Stamp Act in that city, and Bostonians responded by beheading his effigy, demolishing his carriage house, and stealing all his liquor. By a month later, late September, the riots have spread to other colonies. Maryland, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island. And the men who will become America's founding fathers have begun to realize they need the energy and the fervor and even the violence of these riots if they're going to get what they want. More power over what happens in the colonies. It is this intense public outcry far more than a gathering of delegates in a fancy building that will ultimately bring the Stamp Act down. You can look at any significant moment in history and you'll probably find popular protest behind it. (laughs) Popular protest has always been central to change if people did not protest. We would live in a very different country in a very different world. Today, how did this grassroots rebellion, the Stamp Act riots, become a spark that fueled the American Revolution? And what does it mean that popular protest has been part of America's DNA since even before independence? For History When You Want It, sign up for an extended 30-day free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 documentaries and series from the History Channel, commercial-free on your favorite device. Plus, new videos are added to History Vault every week. Sign up now and explore the greatest stories in history, from ancient civilizations to American history, modern warfare, and more. To start your extended 30-day free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. When Christopher Pearl thinks about the American Revolution, 
he doesn't picture the usual faces. History had always been taught in this sort of top-down fashion. You know, you learn about your Samuel Adams or your Benjamin Franklins and George Washingtons. And they're extremely important to the story of the Revolutionary Era. But the people on the ground were really mobilizing to create fundamental change. Dr. Pearl is an associate professor of history at Lycoming College, focusing on the American Revolution. He says the Stamp Act riots are a perfect example of that. Everyday people mobilizing. The years before the riots began, the 1760s, were a time of economic downturn. Britain has fought the Seven Years' War, they're in a lot of debt, and in the colonies, economic mobility is not really a thing. The stories we hear about Benjamin Franklin, for instance, and sort of picking himself up by the bootstraps, that kind of had gone the way of the dodo bird. Plus, the colonies are growing. Their population is doubling every 20 years. Their economies are becoming more complex. They're taking over more territory. But England is still treating them the same way, as basically a market for British manufactured goods, not as a place that needs, say, official representation in Parliament. And the colonial governments, the governments that have an actual physical presence in the colonies, those officials seem increasingly out of touch with the regular people who live under their rule. People feel excluded. You have this moment where we have social tensions, political tensions, economic tensions that are colliding. It's a powder keg because it's ready for something to trigger it. And into all this comes a match that will light the powder keg. A new tax on the colonists. The Stamp Act. The act is passed in March of 1765. It's set to go into effect on November 1st. And it is effectively a tax on paper. Newspapers, legal documents, playing cards. So anyone who sells a box of playing cards has to pay this tax. When you buy the cards, you'll pay more. And when you look at the box, you'll see a stamp. So it has a crown on it with sort of swords in the back. That stamp certifies that the seller has paid the tax. And it is going to show up on a lot of stuff. It'll be an extreme headache for those that want to use the paper, particularly for the legal system. Anytime you want to use paper, you're going to see this stamp. And many colonists start to view this tax as a way that the British are taking advantage of them. Because the revenue, it's not like it's going to improve schools in Boston or Maryland. Instead, it's paying British debt from the Seven Years' War and paying for the British to expand their empire even farther. The colonists don't like this at all. They had no say in the passage of this tax. They don't have official seats in Parliament. And it's going to hit basically every colonial citizen right in the pocketbook in the middle of a depression and at a time when they're already frustrated, feeling that their government doesn't give them a voice. You start to see this phrase really take off, is this idea of no taxation without representation. No taxation without representation. That famous revolutionary rallying cry. It starts to appear when colonists begin debating the Stamp Act. But they're not just debating. 
After the tax is announced in March, people start to get angrier and angrier. In Boston, a semi-secret group called the Loyal Nine starts to print up pamphlets and post signs against the tax. They're merchants and middle-class businessmen who want to take the Stamp Act down. And then... On the morning of August 14th, an effigy of Andrew Oliver, the new commissioner of the Stamp Act, he's an important merchant and part of a really important political family. That effigy was swinging from the great elm tree in the south end of Boston. The threat of violence here was palpable, which was soon made real. That evening, a mob rips down the effigy, puts it on a spike, and marches it into town. Several hundred people descended on the merchant office of Oliver. Oliver had a merchant office on his wharf. Once they got to the merchant office, they leveled it in less than half an hour. It's worth noting here that the Loyal Nine helped organize this action. But it was really the everyday people of Boston who put it into effect. And the night gets pretty chaotic. They make their way over to the wharf, over to Oliver's office building, where they think the stamps might be. This is where they think that they're all held. And they tear it down to the ground. And it doesn't end there. Once they tear that down, then they march over to Oliver's home, his mansion house. And they ceremoniously behead his effigy in front of it. And then they break into the home. They scatter his private papers and official documents in the streets. Then they looted the home, carrying off money, silver plates, anything else of value. This riot has an immediate result. The next morning, Oliver let it be known that he would not accept the commission as stamp distributor. But the protest isn't over. Within days, rumors were swirling about the city that at least 15 more houses would be targeted. The rich and powerful people of Boston are scared, as well they should be. Just a few days later. If you think August 14th was violent, it has nothing on August 26th. Hey, sleepyhead, why so sleepy? Oh, it's because your mattress is a bag of potatoes and scrap metal. You should try a Nectar mattress. With award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. In late August in Boston, the tension just keeps rising. August 26th is another day of intense rioting. The day started with a bonfire. It quickly progressed as several hundred people broke the windows and destroyed the furniture inside. Officials connected with like the vice admiralty court and the customs. Then they descended on the Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson's mansion house and they destroyed the building. They tore the cupola from the roof and threw it in the streets. Now, you might be saying to yourself, wow, they're really tearing down a lot of buildings with their bare hands here. How is that possible? And the answer is, 
because there are firemen involved. I will explain. So one of the leaders of this mob is a man named Ebenezer McIntosh. He's a shoemaker and a prominent figure among Boston's working class, and also a member of the South End Fire Company. Actually, a number of the rioters are firemen, and at this time, a lot of houses are made of wood. So if one of them goes up in flames, firefighters actually rip down the houses on either side to make sure that the blaze doesn't spread to the whole block. Definitely a bummer if your neighbor has a fire, but there you go. So some of these men have experience ripping down buildings quickly, which leads to buildings destroyed in minutes, cupola in the street. And these protests get results. Remember, Oliver refused the Stamp Act Commission. Officials try to replace him with a commissioner from Newport, Rhode Island, but he gets run out of office as well, but not before crowds force him to take off his hat and sing a little song in opposition to the Stamp Act. These riots are making clear that the regular people of the colonies have a lot of power. These two days result in this sort of reckoning of who should be included in any opposition to people and policies. So in September of 1765, for example, the Loyal Nine started to increase their members and they started calling themselves the Sons of Liberty. And they made sure to include people like Macintosh in that grouping. The governor of Massachusetts at the time says that he sees this as the beginning of an insurrection by the poor against the rich. So, I mean... People are recognizing that this is a moment that has uh, vast implications and is really exposing real social and economic tensions in the city. Soon, more cities follow Boston's lead and begin rioting. South Carolina, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, the New York frontier, in New Jersey. In New York? They go in and they destroy some homes. They even trample this guy's garden, like his prized garden. And gardens, like you're not, I'm not talking like a small little plot of land. I'm talking like an English style garden. Okay, like hedges and fountains. Yes, yes. In Baltimore, rioters hold a mock funeral, marching past rich people's houses, holding coffins. And that's really threatening if you think about it. There's another mock funeral in Pennsylvania. The crowds bang these muffled drums and issue a warning to a specific official. Threatening to destroy the substance of a recently appointed staff agent, John Hughes. What does destroy the substance? Yeah, that's an actual quote from John Hughes. That means kill him. The riots are getting intense. And in the midst of them, some people decide it's time to do something more official. So the colonial leaders call a meeting, the Stamp Act Congress. It's related to the riots because they think that if there is not a concerted effort to stop the Stamp Act, to get a repeal of the Stamp Act, these riots will get out of control. It also serves a larger political purpose. It's a show of unity among these various colonies. It's like this sort of official body that is voicing the grievances of the North American colonies. They're trying to show that this is a continental struggle rather than just a regional struggle of Boston or Newport or Virginia. Come 1776, this collective spirit will be an engine of the American Revolution. But for now, 1765, 
They're just taking their first steps. Delegates from nine of the 13 colonies meet in New York City in October. It's not very lively, you know. It reads like any other sort of legislative minutes. There is some drama. Some of the delegates present want to take a hard line against Britain, and others are more moderate. One guy does end up challenging another guy to a duel. But overall, the Congress comes up with a fairly moderate, level-headed document. The Declaration of the Rights and Grievances of the Colonists. It includes language in the beginning about how the delegates are, quote, sincerely devoted with the warmest sentiments of affection and duty to his majesty's person and government. Showing loyalty to the king, showing a sort of orderly and conservative uh, argument against the Stamp Act to hopefully appease and appeal to men and measures in England to get a repeal. Their main argument is about taxes. The Stamp Act is a direct tax on items sold within the colonies. Before, taxes had been on trade, stuff that was crossing colonial borders. So the Stamp Act, to them, feels like an overreach. They declare... Each colony itself has the sole authority to tax the people and to distribute the funds of said taxes. So they control the purse strings and the taxes. uh, And they make that argument clear. They're like, Parliament can still make laws for the colonies to follow, but it shouldn't do this direct tax thing. No taxation without representation. It's a moderate position, but it does set the stage for what comes later. It is an official act of open dissent by these colonies as a united front. They send their declaration over to England and wait. That's late October. The Stamp Act is set to go into effect on November 1st. And the people start acting up again. They keep pressuring Stamp Act administrators to resign, and the administrators keep resigning. The newspapers are railing against this tax. One writes, quote, If you comply with the act by using stamped papers, you fix, you rivet perpetual chains upon your unhappy country. On November 1st itself, there's a massive march in Boston, a mock funeral for liberty, led by that shoemaker firefighter, Ebenezer McIntosh. He's wearing this blue and red suit with a gold-laced hat. He's carrying a cane and a speaking trumpet. According to one onlooker, McIntosh's power was awesome. This onlooker said that McIntosh could raise a finger and silence a 2,000-person crowd. The march is organized and generally peaceful, but... They're pulling on the threat of violence, using what happened in August as a sort of, this could happen again. As November continues, the colonists refuse to use this stamped paper, and that threat of violence is always there. People boycott it. They stop the distribution of the stamp paper, even the landing of the stamp paper. Like they don't let it get off the ships? In some cases, or in some cases they find it and they try to burn it. And then there's other kinds of opposition too. The newspapers refuse to print on stamp paper and some simply shut it down. Some of the courts do the same thing. All told, England expected to make about 100,000 pounds in revenue off of the Stamp Act. 
but... It doesn't work out that way. They actually get about 3,000 pounds, I believe. (laughs) Of those 3,000 pounds, 45 came from Georgia. The rest came from the West Indies and Florida, not part of the 13 colonies. The Stamp Act is a pretty obvious failure. It's unenforceable, not bringing in revenue, and the message has been received. In March of 1766, about a year after passing the Stamp Act, the British Parliament decides to repeal it. There's celebrations throughout the North American colonies. There's parades and ceremonies, public celebrations on this major, what they see as a major achievement, but it's sort of fleeting. Fleeting because Parliament is still anxious to assert their power. They quickly issue something called the Declaratory Act, which basically codifies their right to impose whatever tax they want. Is there change to the way the colonies governed in the future? No. So it doesn't really result in anything tangible. But, Dr. Pearl told us, there is an important intangible result. The repeal of the Stamp Act proves to the early colonists the importance of popular protest. And that is a lesson that the country proceeds to learn over and over. I think we recognize in hindsight that we need those movements to effectuate necessary and meaningful change. I think revolutionaries understood that. They knew the shock and magnitude of it all, the theatrics of it all, can generate real change. But Pearl also reminds us, in the moment, popular protest always feels uncertain. We have this feeling that the revolutionary generation are all of one mind with all the same purpose and the same goals. But it's much messier than that on the ground. And it's the working out of the problems that all these different groups are trying to rectify that ultimately created the country. Professor Pearl says, the moment of popular protest that we're going through now, we can't see the whole picture while we're living through it. It will be defined by what comes after. But we can be sure that however chaotic a moment like this feels, we've been here before, time and time again starting well before the country was founded, when a group of firefighters ripped down a carriage house and laid the seeds of a new nation. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on History Today. And for history anytime, anywhere, sign up for a one-month extended free trial of History Vault, where you can stream over 2,000 award-winning documentaries and series from your favorite device with new videos added every week. To start your one-month free trial, visit historyvault.com forward slash podcast today. This episode was produced by McKamey Lynn and Emma Fredericks. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. 
and we will see you next week.